You're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. This episode comes from a live show that we did on October 1st. We talked with three people from the criminal justice organization, We Are All Criminals. The organization is working to change cultural perceptions of people who are incarcerated. You can find out much more extensive backgrounds of our guests on the We Are All Criminals website, but here's a much more abbreviated version. Emily Baxter is the executive director and the developer of the organization. The two other guests are board members. Ingrid Nuttall works in the Office of Information Technology at the University of Minnesota. And our final guest was Nadine Graves, who, in addition to being a board member, is an assistant public defender in Hennepin County. Our media sponsor for this season was MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find out more information at MinPost.com. Thank you all so much for being here this evening. I'm terrifically excited. We're kicking off our season with just like a nice, easy thing like criminal justice. Uh, So uh, delighted to have you all here. So I wanted to start by just sort of setting the table to some degree uh, in... You, I know, Emily, have been working on this for a while. You were a past board chair. You're the current board chair. I mean, I I was really drawn to talking about this because I think the way that you all are approaching this work is very different than a lot of other organizations. So maybe if you were to, what I'm sure you have an elevator speech or you're sort of like, what is We Are All Criminals and how how it operates. So can you just maybe for folks who wandered in here thinking that there was going to be like a cabaret show tonight or something like that, (laughs) give us a setup. That couldn't come later. Yeah, Yeah. sure. Um, So We Are All Criminals is a collection of stories of people who have gotten away with crimes. Uh, Doctors, lawyers, policymakers, professors. Uh, I interview them, ask them about what they've done for which they were not caught. We look at how race and class prevented them from being within the crosshairs of the criminal justice system. Uh, And then I... And, and we look at how their lives would have been different had they been caught through an examination of state statute, federal code, mm. and broader so- social stigma. And then I contrast those stories with stories of former clients of mine. I'm a former public defender. Uh, Nadine is a current public defender. Uh, as well as stories of colleagues and family and friends and mentors and leaders who have been caught or accused of engaging in the same behavior and then have been systematically locked out of life because of the criminal record that they carry that these others who are able to stand in judgment of people with records do not carry. And uh, how, I, I think that for a lot of folks it might be obvious sort of the purpose of that, but maybe you could just say a few words about what is the sort of impact or the output that you're hoping folks sharing these stories has? So um, I had this conversation with Emily a number of years ago. How would you sort of just describe what the future looks like if We Are All Criminals is doing its work uh, in the best way possible? And I think she said it best, which is we're seeking to inspire mass social, mass individual change followed by mass social change by creating um, a reason to have empathy for other people. So part of the storytelling um, strategy, if you will, that Emily talked about is to get people to not only listen to stories from other people, but to reflect on their own stories and how their life might have been different. Is it is this hard? Like, I mean, in terms of like going up to somebody who's an elected official or uh, a police officer or whoever it is and saying like, I'd love for you to talk about a time you didn't get caught uh, and do it like in a very public way uh, in order to make this broader point I and I, that's sort of a funny way of putting that but I imagine that you all have figured out 
a good way to sort of approach that at the front end. How do you? Well, I know initially what Emily did is sent out an email and asked that the people she initially sent that first round of emails to shouldn't respond, but they should send that over that email out to their extended network. Hmm. And so there were sometimes two, three, four p- persons removed, and then they responded hmm. um, to her question, like, what's the one thing that you got away with? And um, what's the worst thing you've ever done that you didn't get caught for? And then those how the, that's how the responses started coming. And why, why do that way? I, I think it was important to have some sense of removal so that people didn't have... A relational barrier to telling me something. Sure. Uh, and so be, I, I think a lot of people came uh, through that initial wave and continue to come forward. By the way, I am still actively interviewing, so if you would like to share a story later, let me know. Do you have a camera? camera? Yeah. Um, I, I think that some people want to, to divulge because of a, a need for catharsis, some because of a, a curiosity like, what would have happened if I would have been caught smoking dope, selling dope um, in, in college? Would I have been able to graduate? Would I have been able to get my internship? Would I have met my wife? Would I now have my, my two kids? What would life be like if I didn't have the luxury to forget the things that I had done? What would life be like for me if I were defined by my past mistakes or past acts? Just to kind of add on to that, I think in the isn't it difficult to kind of get people to disclose Um, even people who are interested in the project and what it's doing, I think kind of still have this perspective that it is still everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you really take the time to think about your own stories, you're not necessarily thinking about those youthful indiscretions or, you know, things that you did, whatever, however it is you have created that narrative for yourself, you're not thinking about it like crime. And one of the things that the project is trying to do is to say, Right, all of those things that um, everybody engages in, regardless of whether or not you believe it is a crime. Um, there's unless any unless someone here knows every single thing that is illegal, it's very likely that you have, and you can go through that list and say that is not something I did. It is you. You have done something, and so it's reframing it to not have it be everybody else, but also to say, you know, t- talk to me about your life. And then you can get at what those things might be through just conversation and engagement. I, I want to dig more into how, what the actual stories sound like and what some of them are. But I did want to, just on this broader point of the, how we think about this distance between, uh, you know, uh, probably the way a lot of people think about it. Just, oh, regular society and then people who are criminals. Mm-hmm. But you work as a public defender. And I'm wondering, even in that particular community, like in folks who are doing that kind of work, mm-hmm. do they make that distinction? Uh, is there a difference? I've never had someone do that. That's so funny. Uh, so uh, so uh, do, do they, ma- uh, or is it maybe a spectrum? I mean, uh, when you're thinking about, I'm deep in this work or whatnot, mm-hmm. Is there, uh, does that resonate differently, I guess I'm asking, for people who are actually working on this stuff? As far as othering individuals? No, they're members of my community, for me. Um, And I think for a lot of people in my office, that's how we look at it. We're helping residents, Hennepin County residents. And so when you reframe it like that, you don't other individuals. It's not those people. It's not those people in Northside or Southside. These are members of my community that I care for, and I would want the same representation for myself that I would want for them. Yes. Um, so let's, let, let's talk about some of how this actually plays out. And so I, I'm curious if there are particular examples that really sort of like, you're like, oh yeah, 
that is sort of one of the ones that like that had the impact or the resonated the way that we immediately that's how I always dream sort of these stories would work out which is a weird way to phrase that but you get what I'm saying yeah that the somebody shared this story and it uh, it totally hit the way that I was sort of imagining so I over the past six years now seven years have collected more than 400 stories and the vast majority of those have been stories that have caught me off guard, that have landed so perfectly. When I first started, I, I had been, as I mentioned, a public defender, and I was used to kind of controlling the conversation because you, you, in just a few minutes, if that, you need pertinent information, not information that is not pertinent, and you need to be able to make an argument for them um, uh, say for bail right. uh, within moments of meeting the individual and so I was so used to having these very rushed and controlled conversations that that was the way I was conducting interviews but when I finally relaxed and just let people take the wheel and tell their own story and dig deeper where they were comfortable and encourage them to dig deeper where they weren't um, that's when <laughs> I hit gold time and time again, people realizing their privilege on their own, people unraveling their own lives and recognizing all of the thresholds that they had sailed through without even realizing they were crossing a, 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 crossing a door. Um, I, yeah, I don't know, do you have a Well, I, we were talking downstairs, there was in, you know, reflecting on the stories for this conversation we're having right now. I went on the website, went on our website and looked at a story that I hadn't looked at before that was of a, um, a law enforcement official who uh, had a past of driving while intoxicated. Um, and so this individual talked about how they, um, you know, that was one of the things they did growing up, they did a number of times, they had many ways of justifying why that was okay, I'm not going very far, I don't wanna call a hmm. cab, I can control it, you know, all of these different things. And, um, and then eventually had a, a crucible moment in their life where they dealt with their problem and ended up becoming a law in, enforcement um, official. And eventually rose, uh, you know, had a family, everything, and was pursuing a dream of working at a higher level um, in the story, I believe it's the Secret Service. Is it what is it? Is that what it is? Secret Service, um, and ended up in a collision with someone who was driving under the influence, um, which had a traumatic impact on this person's life and on this person's family, uh, a devastating impact. And uh, without going into all of the details, but this caused. Um, the person telling the story, obviously a great deal of anger. How dare that person take that chance, take my life, turn my life upside down. They lost this opportunity. Their significant other was injured and just had all of this unbelievable rage. Um, this person then came into contact with the project, with We Are All Criminals, and it was through the project and this reflective process that they were able to process that anger and realize that that person that hit them that just that that you know for all intents and purposes the way this person had framed it had ruined their life that that person that she could have been that person that that person could have um, that, that that could have been her mistake um, I'm actually not 100% sure it's a she but it is. okay <laughs> um, so so that is you know that to me is the example of 
not just reflecting and being like, yeah, I did it, it's in the past, it's there, but this is who I was. I changed my life. I pulled myself up. I had an encounter. This, I othered the person who is me, and then through the process of self-reflection and understanding the project, was able to have empathy for someone that actually had a very real negative impact on their life. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is the most powerful form of empathy that you could possibly ask for. That's very powerful. I, um, I want to, we have a lot to get to, and I should let folks know we're going to open it up for you all to ask questions in the second half of the show. I think that you all start your website um, and a lot of your literature with this, you know, very sobering thing. One in four Americans has a criminal record, and I think, as you point out, four in four Americans have done something that would constitute a criminal record if they were caught or if they had been prosecuted or however um, that the crosshairs that you mentioned of mm. if they had been caught that way. And so... Um, I, I wonder if you've, over the time of doing this, thought more about what causes that othering. Because it does seem, you, we've pointed out, I think that you noted, like, the, the, there's a lot of emotion sometimes that can get wrapped up in this, and there's a lot of personal things. But then there's also, obviously, systemic pieces. And I know we were talking backstage, this overwhelmingly disproportionately affects people of color, um, indigenous communities, and things like that. So... I, I realize that's a lot uh, mm -hmm. to put on the table, but that othering that happens, how much of it is maybe something that happens out of a personal emotional thing? How much of it is systemic? Is there any way to think about those two things in the same breath? I think media plays a huge role in how criminals are perceived. And so if I ask the audience to describe a drug dealer, they're probably going to describe someone who's African-American, on the corner, hand-to-hand -hand exchanges. They're not going to describe someone who lives in Edina that hmm. is taking pills out of their mom's cabinet. Yeah. And so just that reframing of what you view as criminality is huge, and I think We All Criminals does a great job in um, telling these stories where you're able to pause and realize, oh, my God, I've been othering this person, and I'm no different. I've given my meds away to somebody. I've driven drunk. I've smoked weed. I've done all of these different things, so why am I now only viewing these type of people as criminals? And that's on an individual level, and on a systemic level... Edina's not being policed right. like North Minneapolis is. You know, there, there are a lot, there's a lot more drug activity happening on the U of M college campus than there is probably anywhere else in the cities, and yet those doors aren't, aren't being broken down. So, I mean, it's, it's systemic and individual all at once. I, so I want to bring something. So um, I, I was at a conference earlier today where one of the speakers made this point where she said... Uh, Real change is uh, culture change, not policy change. And I was like, I don't know how to feel about that. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly, I kind of left thinking, like, I don't know if I agree with that or not. Um, I don't know. And so what do you think? Well, I mean, I think that policies can be passed and policies can be circumvented and they can be undone. Uh, they can be ignored. I... I, I think that a cultural shift is necessary. I think that policy change is also necessary, but in order to hold those policies true, in order to hold the, the politicians accountable, uh, we need a cultural shift. Policies are somewhat of our agreement to codify what the culture has decided it wants to do. That's why things change. Like things, you know, that's why things change, because people change. Um, 
And so, I, again, going back to why I think that the work that you all are doing is so interesting is because that seems to be where it's starting with. So, uh, Emily, I know you worked a lot on the Ban the Box campaign, uh, which we can talk about in some... There are other policy pieces, but it does seem like a huge piece of what we're talking about here in the work of We All Criminals is, you know, we could pass all the perfect policies, but if people aren't there... Mm -hmm. You know, they could just get rolled back five years later or yeah. something like that. Nadine and I were talking about this on the way over. It's not that our criminal justice system exists in a black box, right? We can map out the algorithms and we can see who the the pressure points are. We can define those variables. Uh, the the people who who have the most discretion, the people who honestly do the most damage, but have the greatest possibility of creating real change and real reform. Uh, and so we need to hold those variables, variables accountable. We need to elect people who reflect our values. And that's not something that we've really done within the criminal justice system. I feel like we elect people based on fear. We elect people based on, on othering. Um, and I, that, I think that we're at a point now where we're having that conversation and where we're beginning to pick apart those variables and determine where we can swap out uh, people and then how we can hold them accountable. So there's a lot uh, within the context of you know, criminal justice uh, system, and particularly once folks are uh, quote unquote like through the criminal justice system, how that othering still happens policy-wise. But I think that it's really important for us to, to put that on the table because you know, on one hand, we've already talked about people have their own sort of like things that they hold in terms of imagining, oh, somebody is a criminal and so I think about them differently. But then the system is also set up in a way where they are like explicitly othered. Uh, so can we yeah. just like, if you are if you have a criminal record, like what are the things that are different for you? Just to put some of that mm -hmm. on the table. There's tons of collateral consequences. So you're unable to get housing, um, grants for school, student loans, um, job applications, you're, you're not going to be considered if you check the box or if you disclose that you have a criminal record. Relationships, people don't want to date someone who's been in prison for a long period of time. Like all of these different things that people don't think about are consequences of having a criminal record and the stigma that goes along with it. And also I think that because there are those consequences, there's also the psychological toll that it takes mm -hmm. not to talk about your past, like not to talk about your history, not to be able to process it because of all of the shame and stigma that goes along with that, not just for you, but for your family. So I, it's like, it's all of the doors get closed and then you have to close doors on yourself mm -hmm. in order to be able to protect yourself and sort of like be like everybody else when everybody else is already just like you. How did this happen? Because we talk about uh, criminal justice, at least in some sort of idyllic theory as being restorative or like somehow like trying to re rehabilitate people. Um, yeah, uh, uh, folks might have read uh, Michelle Alexander's like The New Jim Crow, which one of the most revelatory parts about that book to me among many revelatory parts is that we were at a point in this country where we talked about, oh, maybe we won't really have prisons anymore because uh, we like don't really, uh, we're, we're getting to a point where we're, maybe the system won't create criminals the same way it did. And obviously that we went in a very opposite direction of that. So how did, why did we create those systems, I guess? I don't know. In 30 seconds or less, if you could just do the last 40 years of criminal justice history. I think a lot of it comes down to money, honestly. I mean, there's a lot of money tied up in our criminal justice system. 
Uh, and if you can other a person, if you can dehumanize a person, our criminal justice system does an outstanding job of unpeopling people, uh, making people not human beings anymore. And once you dehumanize somebody, you can run them through a McJustice system. You can throw them in jail. You can cut off contact with their family. You can feed them inedible dinners. You can uh, lock them away from natural light for not just days or hours, but months and years. Upon release, you can shove them into uh, the, the most isolated and frightening spots that our society has. You can lock them out of all of these opportunities to move on and move up, all the while saying, why don't you move on and move up, if you have a system in place that benefits from that. And there's money at every single stage, from, uh, from arrest to um, forfeiture to uh, EH, electronic home monitoring, EHM. Products to, made by people incarcerated. That's to prison huge. labor. It's, you know, um, it's likely that chairs that we sit on every day are made by people for pennies on the dollar in prison. We don't realize we're doing that. Uh, when we lock them out of job opportunities, uh, when, when we put all of our money into the criminal justice system instead of putting money into communities, instead of investing in people if we just incarcerate, um, yeah, I, I just I think you have to follow the money. And can I, because again, your work as a public defender, I, and one of the things we were talking about a little bit downstairs before the show was, I, your job to me seems impossible. <laughs> that I, I, I'm assuming you have approximately like five thousand people that you are responsible for, and you know you are like ha get like these like two minutes at a time, as we were sort of saying to like interact with them, and yet you are supposed to be presenting their case uh, to folks. And so I, I imagine that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I mean, can, how, how bad is it? <laughs> I mean, there is, we're constantly working against the perception that we're public pretenders. Um, people assume that we're working with the prosecutors and we just want to take plea deals and or we're telling people to plea to get out of jail. But I am very intentional in telling individuals, I'm not having you plead to anything just to get out of jail. I'm not having you plead to anything um, just to get over with this case. Uh, I understand that people have different situations going on in their lives, but it's the prosecution's burden to prove that you're guilty. And so why alleviate them of that burden? Let's take it to trial. And so I'm in trial a lot. I'm tired a lot. <laughs> I have tons of clients. But... Each client, I do my best to give them that individualized attention so that when they leave, they're not going to have the same perception of the public defender's office that they had prior to meeting me. So uh, I, one more time, I'll remind folks, we're going to open this up for questions, but I don't want to end this part of the show without talking about there are things that are uh, that people who are trying to work on this, both from that uh, individual perception level and some more uh, systems-wide things. Obviously, we are all criminals is forefront among them, but... Uh, I could we talk can we talk about grilled cheese like a little bit or like uh, and sort of because I, I think that this is just a really interesting example of yeah. yeah there are these systems that are out there and yet there are businesses or individuals nonprofits that are like oh well we're not going to play that game or we're going to do this differently yeah so All Square in South Minneapolis is a grill, gourmet grilled cheese restaurant that employs individuals with criminal records. Uh, but not only does it employ individuals with records, there's also an accompanying institute. Uh, each of these fellows, uh, as, as the uh, founder refers to the employees, the, found, or the, the fellows, the students, 
uh, are a part of an institute where they learn legal skills and business skills and policy skills. Uh, the idea is that people are worth so much more than what their record will allow them to be. And so through this kind of grilled cheese pipeline, uh, people can, can find their true passions. I would also like to say um, a shout out actually for the organization that brought Emily and I together, which is Amicus, if any of you are familiar with Amicus. So Amicus has, does a lot of good things, but one of the things they have is a one-to-one -one one -one program where you get matched with someone who's incarcerated just to be their friend. And I would say that, um, I mean, I could, we could do a whole separate conversation about that, but what is, you know, we're talking about the system here and, you know, Emily gave you a, her brief history of, you know, follow the money and all of those things. All of these things are true, but once you connect with someone who is actually living it and you understand, you understand really a 360 degree view of, of what it is to be inside. Um, and there are some things about, for some people, for some women who I have met, this is the first place where they have felt safe. You know, so there are, there, it is a very complex thing. It is not just the things that we are gonna talk about today. And I strongly encourage anyone who is interested in getting involved to check out that kind of an opportunity and make a connection with someone who is actually living that life. Well, let me ask you one last piece on this then, because, and, and any of you who wanna jump in on this, but again, I know we were talking a little bit about this, that, that personal reflection piece, which, uh, you've articulated very well, but I can imagine sitting in the audience right now and being like, I want to reflect on this <laughs> and I want to like grapple with this and I almost don't know how. Like I don't know how to sort of even like challenge myself to start thinking about that. And obviously, you know, reaching out through an organization like Amicus would be amazing, mm -hmm. but even if somebody just like this week, like in a personal way wants to sort of think about that or reflect it, is there... Is there a toolkit? Is there a step-by-step -step guide? Is there a flow chart? Uh, I, ha I mean, I have my own thoughts and my own process. Um, I, I would say, it, with, with regard to We Are All Criminals, if you go on the website and you, or we have, we are selling, we are selling books, everybody, today. We are selling books for $30. Um, you can pick them up. They the are the available show. in the back of the um, house. And you all will yeah, sign all yeah, of well, them, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, I, every single one. Um, but you can you can look at the stories and there might be some things in that that would resonate with you. So sometimes reading you know reading those stories that have some connection to you might be one way to do it. I would say that one of the things that I have personally done recently that has had nothing to do with just engaging with the content of We Are All Criminals is simply thinking about what's going. Think about what you're reading about. Thinking about um, you know a news story that you read and who the people are that are involved, or something that you see on TV and who the people are that are involved, and think about one person's life in that story and what that life must be like away from however it has been boiled down. Whether it is someone, if whether it's a, a story about a criminal offense, whether it's a politician, whether it's someone on People.com, I don't care. But just you know, think about unpack someone's life and what it must be like to walk in their shoes and think about how you would want someone to do the same for you journal about it you know there's all kinds of little things you can do to get started on that very powerful note can we please do a tremendous round of applause for these three amazing guests if you ask a okay so uh we're going to open up for questions if you have a question Raise your hand. I will come towards you in a non-threatening manner, and I will give you this sticker. Uh, if you have a question, 
His lovely theater public policy sticker. Surely it's too expensive. No. <laughs> For these good people? Okay, there was a hand all the way in the back, which always makes me happy. Somebody who sat, oh, you go ahead, you fine. That's good, all right. So what did, did you have a hand up? Yes, so I'm gonna hand you a microphone and a sticker. Oh, it's me. All right. You said something about the back. Well, thank you very much. And I know um, I've supported and the work of We All Criminals for a long time, listened to Emily's presentations before. I'm hearing it differently a little bit tonight um, in terms of just the context that we're in with Kavanaugh. And that I just want to hear a kind of a, a response because I'm hearing some things where some people could take it to say, but we're all criminals, right? We've been hearing that now. Um, that's not the... Anyway, I just really, there were a few phrases tonight that resonated to me thinking, oh, I've been hearing similar things in some news media that I don't support, and I absolutely support your message, absolutely I'm on board, just have to note that there feels a different context right now. Hey, Michelle. <laughs> I, Kavanaugh is, is definitely um, bringing up uh, a lot, bringing up a lot of questions with a lot of people. And what you hear time and time again with Kavanaugh, at least the, his supporters, uh, is that he was just a kid, boys will be boys, this is if they believe that something may have happened, right? And the work of We Are All Criminals, the, at least part of the message, is that not everyone gets the opportunity to be a boy. Not everyone gets the opportunity to have that chance to move on. Uh, with Kavanaugh, uh, if he did do the, the vile things that he is accused of doing, and there's certainly good reason to believe that he did, a large part of the problem is that he's not taking accountability yeah. for it, that he is resting upon his privilege and, and acting as if he has existed on a moral plane that is above any presumption of criminality, uh, and that... Because of that, because he's a good guy, he could not have done something wrong. He could not have harmed someone. Uh, and because of his incredible race and class privilege, he has never been within those crosshairs of the criminal justice system. No one has ever held him accountable. No one has ever presumed that perhaps his character uh, might be, uh, could be called into question. And what you're seeing now is someone whose character has never been called into question being called into question on a national stage. Uh, and that, that fury uh, is something that, that we see quite a bit. So, I actually heard a version of this same question earlier today, and they put it a little more pointedly that our, you know, and I realize that there are flaws with this, but we live uh, with this notion or this ideal uh, that oh, it's better to let, you know, a hundred guilty men go free than put one innocent man away for something they didn't do. <laughs> okay, look. With Kavanaugh, if he is not, if, if he doesn't receive this appointment, right, if he is not, if he does not become a U.S. Supreme Court justice, that just means he maintains his slightly less prestigious job with a right. lifetime employment. You know, he, he's not someone who's been eviscerated by the criminal justice yeah. system. I, I think that the, 
the larger point that that person was trying to draw out, though, is that maybe that philosophy, they were questioning, does that philosophy, though, have negative impacts still, right? Because, you know, to, if, if we do live in a society where we say, you know, it's more important to, like, let the, to, to protect the innocent, uh, even if that means letting guilty people go, that does have negative consequences, which is part of what some folks are grappling with now. I don't think that's the reality. I don't think we let innocent people go. Um, I think we have tons, thousands of innocent people trapped in cages right now because of our plea bargain system and our bail system. And so I think that statement comes up when we want it to apply it to someone that we're questioning if they're guilty or not. So we're like, hey, just let them go because we don't know for sure. But when it's the clients that I'm dealing with, there's nobody, there's no presumption of innocence that there should be. Um, it's a presumption of you, you, you don't legally you don't have to prove yourself innocent, but in reality you have to prove yourself innocent. Yeah, you look at our jail population, and the majority of people in, held in most jails around this country haven't been convicted of a crime. They're simply too poor to post bail. How does that happen in a nation that pretends to presume innocence? Right? And again, with Kavanaugh, we're not looking at jail time. We're not looking at prison time. We're not even looking at a criminal record. His punishment isn't legal. His punishment is a slightly less prestigious job. Okay, there was another hand here. Yeah. So I taught Nadine. I'm very proud of her. Nice to see you. Uh, at Mitchell Hamlin. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about the midterms, despite the fact that Tate is not. Uh, and I am curious what you would say from a legislative perspective to, I am hopeful, our incoming governor, Tim Walsh, and his lieutenant, Peggy Flanagan, what can we do at the legislature to change? Um, I feel inspired by Florida, who is making huge strides on felon voting. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say to them, and what would your ask be? I was just thinking I've never heard anybody say that they've been inspired by Florida. I think that the, the Minnesota Second Chance Coalition has a great lineup of things that they're hoping will get some play this coming session. So things like um, voting restoration rights, allowing individuals who are on probation, who are living in the community, who are working in the community, or at least trying to, to work in the community, um, people who are paying taxes, sending their kids to school, driving down the same streets, uh, that they are able to have a voice in, uh, in their neighborhood, a voice in the leadership, a voice on who's on school board, a voice on who's uh, on the park board, a voice on who's going to fill that pothole on that street. Um, and so that's voting uh, restoration for individuals on felony probation is, is certainly one big push within the Minnesota Second Chance Coalition. Um, they're also looking at reducing probationary periods. I don't know if you all know this, but in Minnesota, it is not uncommon for a probation period, so a, a time that you have been convicted of a crime and you're told that if you comply with conditions of probation, you can remain in the community, you won't be locked up. Um, that's not just a one year that that 
sentences hanging over your head. It's not just five years that you're checking in with a probation officer every time they, they demand that you stop in their office. It's not just 10 years that you have to be not just a good probationer, but a superhuman. Sometimes it's 20, 30 years that people are on probation. It's absolutely insane and absurd. And so dialing back probationary periods uh, in Minnesota is certainly one, is another big push for the Minnesota Second Chance Coalition. And then access to fair housing. Um, now, I haven't lived in Minneapolis for a little bit, but when I was last here, uh, the Minneapolis Public Housing Authority prohibited individuals who had a public urination on their record from accessing public housing for one year past the point of conviction. And they didn't just prohibit individuals with these public urinations on their records from accessing housing, they booted them down to the bottom of the list. That could be years long. Give that a second, just, just give that a thought. You're homeless or underhoused, and you've got to pee. It is likely that you will pick up a, a public urination, right? What's the best thing that we can do? Provide you housing with your own bathroom. Instead, MPHA locks you out of that. So um, providing access to safe and affordable housing for individuals with records is another big push. I, I have one thing to add to that, which is going to be way less rooted in examples that Emily has, but it's, it's something that I've been giving a lot of thought to, which is, you know, we're talking about second chances for people with criminal records. That's part of the we are all criminals, um, part of the thing that we're asking. It isn't just access to jobs. It's access to jobs that provide mobility for people. So um, one of the things about Allscore that is really, really interesting and really different is, so they're employing these fellows in the shop but then there's also, they go through a training program to learn how to be entrepreneurs or to learn how to work um, in, in the justice system. And so I think providing more career pathways for people that lead to economic mobility. It isn't just about a job that tops out at a low paying wage that doesn't have any mobility unless you have a four-year degree or unless you have a graduate degree. And like, I work in IT, that is IT. I mean, that, that can be IT for people. So I think kind of reframing what pathways for, to, for jobs means for people with criminal records to be like, we want people to be middle class, upper middle class. We really want people to succeed, I think, is something I would like to see happen in a more comprehensive way. Nadine, can I ask you, I, are there, at, are there, whether or not it's uh, obviously you're a nonprofit, you don't want to endorse individual candidates, but are there questions that folks in this room, if they have the chance to meet a candidate for uh, you know, a countywide office, statewide office, that we should be asking them of, that specifically relates to the work that you do? You know, we've talked about how tricky your job is right now. Um, specifically, I would ask if what, what their position is on legalization, legalizing marijuana. Um, it's huge how officers are able to say they smell marijuana and then search people's vehicles and find whatever they, they find. And nobody, I can't, I can question them, cross-examine them on did you really smell it, but people are going to take an officer's word for what it is. Um, so legalizing marijuana. I see a lot of prostitution stings. I'm for decriminalizing prostitution. Um, and so that's something I would ask too because we see tons of people stuck in addiction that are cycling in through our court systems that are involving in, and we use sex to sell everything else, but we're criminalizing people who are engaging in something that we make millions off of. That's a great answer. Okay, so I saw a hand over here. Hello. 
One way in which uh, everybody in this room can affect the um, criminal justice system is in their choice of candidates for a county attorney. Um, we have an election this year in which one candidate is a 20-year incumbent mm -hmm. uh, and represents the status quo, and another candidate is uh, one of a new breed of progressive prosecutors who is calling for legalization, who helped pass the ban the box bill, uh, who helped uh, reform Minnesota's drug sentencing laws and re reduce the use of cash bail. And I'm just wondering if you could address the consequences of the contrasting styles in this election for the kind of criminal justice system you see. Um, I think it's huge. We can see a shift in our criminal justice system if we elect the right people. Um, and a direct example I can think of is in Philadelphia. They recently um, elected the county attorney there and he immediately fired a whole bunch of prosecutors who were not willing to use their discretion to stop charging marijuana charges. And so having someone in office that or in a position like that that can use that discretion and top down trickle through down to the city attorneys that I work with would be huge for me. I, my I, clients, yeah. I wanted to bring one other as we've we've gotten at least two or three questions now about electoral issues which makes sense we are in a midterm time. I mean, one of the things that's interest has always been interesting to me, though, about criminal justice reform is that it hasn't traditionally broken perfectly along partisan lines, right? Like that there are, you know, I, I remember just I was at the legislature this past session and uh, Congressman Jason Lewis was there doing an event with M Melvin Carter about some of these issues. So uh, I'm wondering if you can speak, is there, so again, if folks are starting to think about, uh, oh, who should I be talking to and what should I be asking, uh, how does this go beyond just sort of like, you know, uh, one party or, yeah. or one side of the aisle or the other? I would challenge this tough on crime rhetoric and realize that, yes, we've been tough on crime for years and years and what has changed but our prison population. And, and, and ask tough, difficult questions to challenge these politicians that want our votes mm -hmm. um, and put them on the spot. And if they can't answer, then you don't deserve my vote. Mm -hmm. That's frankly how I am. I would also say I, pre I really appreciate the question because I think this is something I'm only just now really starting to get my head around. But don't assume that someone who is more, you know, progressive is going to align necessarily with your perspective on these issues unless you ask them and get an answer to Nadine's point. Um, we have some of the most progressive people that have that you know, voted for the major crimes bill, that, that voted for things that affected a generation of people. So you cannot assume, if I go here, I'm gonna get this, because this issue in particular, it, it's a really, as we've talked about, and I'd really appreciate the first question, it's really complicated and there's a lot of emotions tied up in it. So ask, ask the questions without even knowing what the answer is that you're looking for to see how people are thinking. That's great. Okay, uh, I have time for maybe one or two more questions. Uh, if people want a sticker. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I wonder if you can expand on the culture versus policy question. It feels to me that we really need policies on when culture fails. Oh. Hey, Boris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know everyone in the audience on a first name basis? A few. Um, I, 
I'm not, I'm by no means suggesting that we don't need policy change. We absolutely do. And, and in some ways, policy helps inform our culture, right? But I also think that our culture most definitely informs policy and holds that policy and those policymakers and then the people who implement the policy accountable. So absolutely, without doubt, policy change is is necessary, right, in, in the world of criminal justice reform or disruption, however you want to frame this. Uh, but I think that we need to go a little bit deeper. Here's my fear. If we think about this as, um, if we think about our, our current mass, uh, mass criminalization, mass disaster, as something that can be fixed with a single policy, as something that can be clicked away, as something that if you support this bill or this politician or implement this particular policy, then we're all done, we're all good, and somehow 40 years of, of, of just destroying lives and communities will suddenly disappear. It wasn't one policy or three policies or eight policies that got us into this mess, and it's not going to be one policy or three policies or eight policies that will get us out of it. And so while I think that we do need to work on those policy changes, without something far deeper within each of us that can make sure we, we hold those policies accountable, that, that they are doing the things that we expect them to do, then it all just falls apart again. So that is a great thing. And we've talked about uh, several things that folks should be thinking about and asking potential elected officials, um, the self-reflection. But I mean, again, I do really think that after, this is a lot. We've given folks, I think, a lot to think about and chew on. And so um, if folks are going to walk out of here tonight, what are what are the next steps if they're really motivated, if they want to, other than buy the book, which is for sale <laughs> in the back, yes. But uh, after that, they have the book, and then what's the second step? Oh, um, I I want to I want to give an I want to give an answer that is actionable, and I think there are so many. I mean, we've talked about housing, we've talked about um, you know volunteering one on one, we've talked about understanding what's happening with policy, getting schooled on what particular people running for particular races are doing. Pick one thing that matters to you that speaks to you. There's. Anything you are interested in in life has a connection to this topic. Find the intersection between what you are passionate about or where you have agency, where you can make a difference. Find the intersection between that and this and start there. It is a big ocean to boil. And I think it is, can be completely, I know for me personally, right, it's like totally overwhelming and exhausting to be like, it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. Just start with one thing that you can do within this space and take one step. I agree. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, on that amazing note of unity, I mean, I cannot think of a better way to end. So please, a tremendous round of applause. These three amazing guests. Thank you for listening. 
This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.